You could go ahead and turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 12. So we picked it back up in Genesis from where we left off a couple years back. We're at chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, and we'll be going verse 10, hopefully through verse 20 today. I believe that the Lord just answered a prayer for me just a moment ago, and I want that to be an encouragement to us all as we go to the Lord in prayer now. I feel like even, even after the, the powerful reminder of the Lord's Supper, my heart can still be cold towards the King of glory, the one who died for me. And we began to sing to the Lord in that third line of the first song. I think it's the third line. It says something like, Be still, my soul, and know this peace. The merits of your great high priest have bought your liberty. And he's speaking to his own soul. Be still, my soul, and know this peace. He's speaking to his own soul. So we sang that a moment ago, and it reminded me in the Psalms when... when in God's word in the Psalms, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let, it all, let all that is within me bless your holy name. So it's like he's preaching to his own soul, saying, Why are you cold, O soul? Worship the King. And I began to pray that in that first song that God would help me. And I believe he did. I think he answered that prayer. And he enabled me with my soul. Not to be cold toward him. But to sing to, to, the, to the God that created us, the God that gave His life for us, to be able to sing to Him with joy in my heart, not just with words on my lips. And so even now, what we're about to do is we're about to open God's Word, and we want to continue to worship God. There's things revealed in this passage about who God is that is absolutely glorious. And God forbid that we look at God's Word in a cold manner. So, so I want us to pray right now and believe in God that He answers our prayers, that He would help us, God. Oh, soul, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. So please pray with me. And we'll move into this passage of Scripture together. Father, I pray that you would help us. God, we see coldness in us at times, coldness of love, that we can read such amazing things from your word and sing such beautiful things about you. And yet no affections be in our soul. Oh God, help us. And thank you, God, that you hear this prayer. And I believe you, Lord. We are your children. We come to you, Lord, absolutely in need. We come to you, God. We need your help. We can't even bless your holy name, God. We can't even worship you for these amazing truths unless you help us, God. So God, we're about to open your word. Help us, Lord. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Teach us, God, to lean in. To fight against sin, Lord. To fight against distractions. All these things around us, Lord. To fight against weakness in preachers. And all these things, God. And God, I pray you help us to lean in. And look at your word and hear from your spirit this morning. Help us, God. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, before we read this passage, I want to say a few things. You know, really, Genesis, the book of Genesis, beginning in chapter 1, is a story of God Almighty creating all things for His glory, creating humans 
In His image, Genesis chapter 1 is about God creating all things for His glory and humans in His image. We see humans, as we read through Genesis, we see humans rebel against their God. God was good to us. God was glorious in His creation. And yet we rebel against Him in cosmic treason. And we see God in unthinkable mercy. Ridiculous mercy. Promise us that He's going to raise up a rescuer. And we see that in the book of Genesis. Chapter 3, He's going to raise up a rescuer for the rebels or a savior for the sinners. And all that is the main point of Genesis 1 through 11, which we walked through a couple years back. There's one coming. The seed of the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head. He's coming. And as we know, he's already come. So this great Messiah, he's promised to come as the seed of the woman through the lineage of Adam and Eve. The family tree, we read through Genesis, the family tree of Adam and Eve would branch out all over the world. But the book of Genesis would trace out one branch of that tree leading up to the Christ who is the Savior. Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so in Genesis chapter 12, what do we see? We see this zeroing in, this focus in on a man named Abram and his family. We see a focusing in on a man named Abram and his family. Through him is coming that Messiah. And if you do a study of Abram or who will soon be known as Abraham, just a study throughout the whole Bible will leave you up with a, a portrait of Abram as a man of faith. That's the example put before us in, in this man, Abraham. He's a man of faith. It's all over the scripture. So Hebrews eleven eight says, by faith, Abraham put forward as an example. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, by faith, Abraham put forward as an example. Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this faith of Abraham, that same verse in Genesis 15 is quoted all over the Bible. This is a man of faith. In Romans chapter 4 verse 20 it says no unbelief made him waver. So here's Abraham put forward as a man of faith. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 12. Verse 1 through 9 that Dustin taught through last week. We see Abram. God calls him to do a radical thing. He gives him some absolutely radical promises. And Abram steps out in bold faith, trusting God and obeying God. This is Abram put before us as an example. Genesis 12, 1 through 9, it leads us, leads us with Abram, the man of faith. And he's dwelling in that promised land that God promised him. He's, he's putting up altars in the face of these pagan, these pagan gods. And there he is in that promised land. The man of faith has stepped out in obedience, stepped out in faith. And what do you expect to happen next? What do you expect to happen in verse 10? Material blessings to this man. Prosperity that would come to this man. A life of ease. Look at him. He obeyed God. He's a man full of faith. And yet, what does the scripture say? It says, now there was a famine in the land. Do you hear how amazing that is? God brings him into the promised land. And then the God that controls all famine says there's a famine in the land that he brings him into. There's a famine in the land. And so what we're about to read, we're about to read this passage of scripture. 
And we're going to read a man's faith being tested. Even tested by famine. And we're going to read a man's faith faltering. As Abraham does not pass the test. And we see God through all this remain faithful. So we're going to see the man of faith. He meets famine and failure. But God is faithful. So read it with me. Genesis 12. Verse 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife. So you imagine this. About to enter into Egypt. What's Abraham going to say to his wife as they get ready to enter into Egypt? He says this, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. That's a good start, Abraham. But this is where it goes south. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you, Sarah, live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. This was a beautiful woman. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. This is a catastrophic event in the life of Abram and Sarah. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, so, so imagine now Pharaoh says what to Abram? Look at what he says to Abram. What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for a wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife. And all that he had. So let's go back to that first verse, verse 10. Let's start with that first heading. First heading on your study guide. What we're seeing here is Abram's faith is being tested. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. That is a testing of Abram's faith. Now how do I know that's a testing of Abram's faith from God? Because God controls the famine. Don't you know that about him? That God controls the famine? God said this. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. In Isaiah 45 verse 7. The psalmist who understands that God controls the weather. He says this to God. He says, God, pursue them with your tempest. 
and frighten them with your storm. He knows that God controls these things. And God uses these things. The young man who rebuked Job, you remember him? He rebuked Job and he had it right when he said this. He said, with moisture, God saturates the thick clouds. He scatters his bright clouds and they swirl about being turned by his guidance that they may do whatever he commands them. Psalm 105 verse 16 says it just as plain as day about God. It says this. He summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. He summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. This is from God. Do you think God brought Abraham into the promised land and said, Oh, oops. Forgot there was going to be a famine there. No, God sent the famine. This is a testing of this man's faith. The man of faith that we read about in Genesis 12, verse 1 through 9, his faith is being tested. So I want us to be absolutely clear that this is God's way. This is the kind of thing that God does. He's not just a rewarder of faith. He's a tester of faith. I want you to know that about your God. And first off, I want you to see it from one verse of Scripture. James chapter 1. Verse 2 through 4. Listen to it. This is what God is like. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So when you meet trials of various kinds, He causes the testing of your faith. And yet it's for your good, the testing of your faith. What we see in God's Word is when you step out in faith, oftentimes God sends a famine. God sends a famine. And I also want you to see this from just just reminding us of different examples where, where God sees somebody steps out in faith and what they're met with is testing. I want you to see that from examples. We have the example here. Abram steps out in bold faith. He's in the promised land. Immediately he runs into a famine. But what else? Later in the book of Genesis, we see uh, Abram's great grandson, Joseph, believe God's promises. Next thing you know, he's in slavery, sold into slavery. A little bit later, we're told that the people of Israel, it says this, they, by faith, they cross the Red Sea as by dry land. Only to land on the other side in a place where there's no food and no water. The testing of their faith. But what about Jeremiah the prophet? Called by God to preach. And preach he did. Only to experience 23 years of beating, imprisonment, and nobody listening to him. The testing of your faith. The early church stepped out in faith only to be fed to the lions. Or bring it close to home. Bring it real close to home to us. That, that, those Peru missionaries that we sent out a few weeks ago. They step out in faith and they go to a land they don't know to take the gospel there. What are they met, met with? They're met with sickness and broken ankles. And fear for their children's health. They're met with trials. Or I thought about the example close to home for us of, of Nick and Carrie. 
in our midst. They, by faith, Nick and Carrie begin to move their lives towards going to India and taking the gospel there. Next thing you know, what happens? Their sweet baby boy, John Hudson, diagnosed with a heart condition. We've got a God that tests faith. What about our brother Patrick sitting here? He steps out in faith and God saves his soul as he moves towards God and he draws near. Next thing you know, he's two years in prison for things that he did before he was in Christ. Our God's a God who tests faith. And what about you? What kind of famine will you be in or are you in now? God not only rewards faith, He tests faith. So the question there is why? Why does God test faith? Why does He, why does he send, send the famine to your faith? Why does He do that? And I say this, sometimes it's to verify faith. Whether it's true or false. What you think about maybe in Mark chapter 4. You got the parable of the four souls, right? And that second soul says the seed goes in to the soul and immediately it springs up quickly, right? But as soon as the sun comes out, which Jesus says is trials and hardships and persecutions, that's going to happen just as sure as the sun comes up is the idea. And as soon as the sun comes up, that thing that that sprung up quickly, it withers. Why? Because it verified there's no true faith there. So sometimes these trials, these testings are to verify faith. But with Abraham being a true child of God, this testing is not so much to verify faith as much as, as it is to purify his faith. This is an act of love from God. To test this man's faith is an act of love. I want you to hear the love of God in that. That he tests you and it's for your good and for his glory. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 and 7. Listen. You have been grieved. That's a sadness. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found. Here's the result. This is for your good. God loves you that you may be that that it may be found to result in Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you hear the love of God in that? The love of God in testing our faith. The Apostle Paul said this. He said this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. This momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Do you hear the love of God? In those words and the testing of God. So Grace Community Church. My brothers and sisters. Do you know this? I want to make sure you know this about your God. So that you know when what you're experiencing is testing. Whether it's on a large scale. Or whether it's in the day to day things of life. Do you know this about God? That He tests faith. Are you expecting God to put the famine to your faith? Are you in a time of testing right now? If not you will be. You most certainly will be. And are you ready to remember that God tests you because He loves you so that you can respond appropriately? Are you ready to remember that? That He tests you that the result might be the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I want want us to learn from this hymn, this hymn written over 200 years ago by a a man named John Newton. A wretched, 
slave ship captain turn to a beloved pastor, the man who also wrote Amazing Grace, and listen to these words about growth in Christ and God's testing. Listen to this hymn. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of His salvation know and seek more earnestly His face. Twas He who taught me thus to pray, and He, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once, He'd answer my request. And by His love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. But instead of this, He made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And let the angry powers of hell assault my soul on every part. Yet more with His own hand He seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cry? Will you pursue your worm to death? Tis, tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials that I employ from self and pride to set you free and break down and break down your schemes of earthly joy so you might find your all in me. What a beautiful poem that, that, that expresses this idea of God is going to test us. Grace Community Church, you believe that. You're asking God, God, make me grow. God, make me more like Christ. Increase my fruit in your labors. And he says, yes, I'll do that. And he does it with testing. Do you know that about him? How will you respond to the testing of God? And what Abram is going to give us is a negative example. He's going to give us a bad example of how to respond to testings of faith. So from the front end, I want to talk to us and remind us just for a moment about some right responses to God's testing of our faith. And let me give you three verses of scripture. One of them is in Habakkuk chapter three. Habakkuk chapter three. We're going to start in verse 17. Habakkuk chapter 3. Look at verse 17. How to respond to trials. Though the fig tree should not blossom, bad news. Nor fruit be on the vines, bad news. The, pro, the, pro, the produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no food. Bad news. Bad news. The flock be cut off from the fold. And there be no herd in the stalls. All bad news. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So here's a response to trials. Here's a response to the testing of the faith. That if I lose it all, I've got God. 
Jesus said this. He said, he said, don't let covetousness be in you for anything else, but be content with the things that you have. Why? Because He Himself has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Be content with what you got. Why? You have God. Who says, I'll never leave you, never forsake you, and you rejoice in moments of trial because you have Him. One brother called this a holy optimism. A holy optimism. Not an optimism that ignores the facts. It's not an ignoring of the facts of trial. But it's looking past those facts to greater facts that we have a God of salvation who loves us and gave Himself for us. Let me give you another verse. Jeremiah 17. How to respond to trials. Jeremiah 17 verse 5 through 8. It says this. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. That's called cursed. When your, your famine or your trial calls you to begin to retreat from faith in God and go to trust in yourself. Cursed is a man that trusts a man. But then it says this. But blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord. Whose hope is in the Lord. He'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that spreads out its roots by the rivers and will not fear when heat comes because his leaves will be green. Not afraid when He comes. Why? Trust in God. Roots spread out by the rivers of our God. One more verse. Psalm 33. In Psalm 33, it actually mentions a famine. I love this verse. Start in verse 16 with me. Look at this. What do you do in trial? The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. So, so in a time of trial, you don't lean into men. You don't lean into your own strength. Curse is a man that trusts in man. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. You might hope in it, but it's a false hope. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. So here's how you really respond. You don't run to the, to the mechanisms of men, but you run to this. Verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him. On those who hope in His mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. When the famine comes, God's eyes are on those who look to Him to keep them alive in the famine, not move Towards their own strength. So I want you to be encouraged. With how, do you, how do you respond to the famines of your life? But what about Abram? How did Abram respond to this test of faith? Which takes us to the second heading there. The second heading in Genesis chapter 12. Or on your sheet there. The second heading is going through Genesis 12. Verse, chapter 12 verse 10 through 16. And what we see here. Because we're going to see Abram met with his test of faith. And we see his, his faith falter. We're going to see the fickleness of the man of faith that we've been describing. Read this with me in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So what's Abram going to do? He's going to look to horses and the mechanisms of man. Is that what he's going to look to? Or is he going to look to God? So Abram went down to Egypt... To sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. Now this, this decision to retreat to Egypt would have been a natural decision. 
Right? So famine in the land. We don't want to starve. Go to Egypt where there's the, the Nile is there. There's always food produced from the Nile River. So there we are. Let's go that direction. It's the natural, it's the natural response. But, but here's the idea. Would th- this would be the logical decision to go to Egypt. But is it the decision of faith? With all the promises that God gave him. In chapter 12, verse 1 through 9. And he's sitting in the promised land. He's got all those promises. The famine comes. Logical decision, go to Egypt. But is it the decision of faith in God? Worldly wisdom and human logic says, go to Egypt. Go to Egypt. But how many of you know that God is not impressed with worldly wisdom and human logic? He's not impressed with that. This is a bad decision to go to Egypt. What this was, was a faithless response to the testing of the famine. One commentator said it like this. He said, this was a desertion of faith. A desertion of faith in favor of logic. This was a desertion of faith in favor of logic. Now, some reasons that this was a bad move to go to, go to Egypt. Four reasons. Number one. We've got no, no evidence here that, that Abram began to inquire of God. That he hid his face and said, God, oh God, what do you want me to do? We've got no evidence of that in this passage. We don't see it saying, God, in prayer, do you want me to stay here? Do you want me to go to Egypt? We've got zero evidence that he inquired of God. That he consulted God in this matter. What we see Abram doing is just what makes sense. What seems reasonable. What seems wise in his own eyes. This is the condemnation that fell down on Joshua when Joshua partnered up with the Gibeonites. Remember that in Joshua chapter nine, it says that he did not ask counsel from the Lord. He did not ask counsel from the Lord. That's number one. Number two, and more clearly, the consequences of his decision to go to Egypt tell us that this was a bad decision. Think about these consequences. The consequences that came. Genesis chapter 12 verse 11 through 13. Sin was added to sin. Not only does he faithlessly go to Egypt. But he begins to deceive. He begins to fear the people of the land. And to do that he's going to walk into deception. Sarah don't tell them you're my wife. Tell them you're my sister. He begins to walk in deception. Sin added to sin. Now just to explain that what's going on. Because you might be thinking. Abram, if you lost your mind, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And there's a, there's a best case scenario, worst case scenario here. Best case scenario is that, is that Abram was thinking something like this. Okay, if I say she's my sister and, they, and she's so beautiful and people see her and want to marry her, they'll have to come through me as the brother to get her, which will give me time to get out of Dodge. It'll give us time to flee. Now that's best case scenario, yet he's still walking in deceit rather than trusting God. Worst case scenario is this, is that this man has no regard for his wife right now. Her safety, her purity, that's worst case scenario. But either way, what we know is that he's practicing deceit rather than trusting in God. So these consequences, sin added to sin, the consequences keep going. Verse 14 and 15, we see that his wife is taken away from him. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's uh, other under rulers there, they see her beauty, recommend her to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh just takes her. If Abram had in his mind, they'll have to go through me as the brother to get to Sarah, my wife. He didn't take an account that Pharaoh doesn't go through you. And Pharaoh just takes her. 
And keep going with those consequences. Verse 16, we see that Abram is getting rich off of this. That, that Sarah's gone to Pharaoh and Pharaoh through that as if it's a dowry has given flocks and, and all, this, all these riches to Abram. So what a kick in the gut. What a spit in the face. Not only have I allowed this to happen, but now what's happening? I'm actually getting paid for this. And ultimately the consequences we see, and we'll read it in a moment, but at the end of this passage, we see Abraham harshly rebuked for what he has done. This is a bad idea to go to Egypt. He's harshly rebuked and walks away from Egypt like a dog with his tail between his legs. Third reason this passage, third reason this is, this is a bad idea to go, go to Egypt. This passage is laid out in such a way that it implies that this was a faithless decision. If you look at the beginning in chapter 12, verse 8 and 9, we see Abram is in, he's real close to Bethel where he built this altar. We hear about the famine. He leaves and goes to Egypt. And when he gets kicked back out of Egypt, he goes right back to that exact same spot where he had built that altar next to Bethel. Implying here what? That this was a wasted trip. That he started in one spot, went back to that same spot. This was a wasted trip. This was a bad idea to go to Egypt. Let me give you one other reason. Number four is this. Egypt is pictured all throughout God's word as a menace to the people of God. This is the first time that Egypt is talked about. But all throughout God's Word, if you survey the Scriptures, Egypt is put forward as a menace to the people of God. Think about it in Exodus. These people are Exodus out of Egypt. And what do they do the whole time they're waiting to go to the Promised Land? Several of them are saying, man, don't we need to go back to Egypt? Don't we need to go back to Egypt? They're plagued for this thought of going back to Egypt. Same thing in Jeremiah's day. God was, God was taking them to Babylon through their captors. And these people wanted to go back to Egypt. God said, don't go back to Egypt. We see the same thing in Isaiah's day. That he's pleading with them not to go back to Egypt. That they're not trusting God. They're fleeing to Egypt. In fact, I want to read a couple of Isaiah's words. Isaiah chapter 30. Actually, Isaiah 31. Isaiah chapter 31. What we see here, although it's in a different context, Isaiah's words show us exactly what Abram's mistake is in going to Egypt. Isaiah 31 verse 1. Listen. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they're many and in horsemen because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. You see that same mistake in Abram's life. Woe to you, Abram, going down to Egypt, putting your trust in the, in the mechanisms of man rather than God who brought you to that land. Look back at chapter 30. Same thing. Verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation, which is exactly what we see happening with Abram. His fleeing to the protection of Egypt ends up turning to his shame, turns to his shame. So we see a great man of faith, Abram, left all 
In chapter 12, verse 1 through 9, he left all to follow God's word. And yet he was tested with famine and he failed the test. It's as if, like it says in Hebrews 11, it's as if that, that he's strolling through the promised land and, and his mind is set where? On, a, on another city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. His mind is there, but then the famine comes and his mind runs to a city whose maker and builder is man. And so he goes to Egypt. Now what do we need to learn from this? And I want to, I want to mention two things that we need to learn from Abram's mistake here. Two things we need to learn from Abram's mistake. Number one is this. There is only one real hero in your Bible. There's only one real hero in your Bible. Now I think we should search God's Word for examples, good examples, bad examples. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our learning. So we should look for examples in the Bible. But when it comes down to it, every man in your Bible will fall infinitely short of the glory of God. There's one hero in your Bible. There's one. But you think about looking at Adam and Eve. You look at Adam and Eve as heroes, but what happened? They failed miserably. You think about Noah, that man who found grace in God's sight. Noah looked to him as a hero, right? And yet he shows himself to be a drunken fool after the flood. And surely Abram, Abram is our example. I mean, we're told in the New Testament to look to him as an example. And yet right here we see his sinful, untrusting heart revealed. And you could really go through the whole Bible and you could pick off every single man one by one. And they would be seen as sinful creatures all through the word of God except one man. Except one man. And that's the man Christ Jesus. Man, Christ Jesus. Christ alone is sinless. These men aren't sinless. You're not sinless. Christ alone is sinless and perfect. He's the only real hero. Hebrews says this, that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he was without sin. John the Baptist said, that, that is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's him, only hero in the Word of God. Satan tried to tempt him in the wilderness, but he never failed like Abram. Christ never failed to Satan's temptations in the wilderness. Because of his perfection, he alone is worthy to die for your sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin, no sin, the perfect one, to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy for billions of angelic voices and heavenly songs to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He's the hero in this world. He's the hero of the Scriptures. And that's the first thing I want you to see from Abram's failures. Second thing I want you to see is this. We need to beware. Everybody hear me out on this. We need to beware of worldly wisdom. Uh, logic. Human reasoning, doing just what seems right, makes sense. We need to beware of that being substituted in for seeking God and His Word in the secret place and trusting whatever He gives you. We need to beware of that. There will be times in your life where the most logical step, humanly speaking, will not be what God wants you to do. Hear me out in that. There will be times in your life where the most logical step, humanly speaking will not be what God 
would have you to do. And here's what a lack of faith in those moments will do. A lack of faith will send you back into Egypt. It will send you back into Egypt to that logical step. But a man of faith, a woman of faith, is willing to sit in that which seems illogical to the world. It will keep you in the midst of the famine. Now why do I say God will do this? And I say well, God, God will do this because it's absolutely all over God's word. That there will be times that the most logical step according to the world is not what God would have you to do. Just to give you some examples. Moses, go strike the rock. That's not logical. But trust him. Or people of Israel, I'm going to provide manna for you day in and day out. Don't get extra. It'll rot. That's not, it's logical. It makes sense to just store up more manna so that you have more for the following days in case it doesn't show up the next day. But he said, I want you to live not by bread alone, but by the word that comes from my mouth. Doesn't seem logical. Or how about this? Israel, keep marching around Jericho. Just keep doing it until the walls fall down. That makes zero sense. Unless you trust God. Or Gideon. Don't go to war against these people. You know why? You got too many soldiers. What? I'm going to whittle you down to 300 men. And I want you to go with 300 men. So that when you win the battle, everybody knows God did it. That's not logical. That's not human reasoning. That's trust in the living God, His guidance and His word. It would seem logical for David... To take the Ark of the Covenant and put it on a cart and let oxen pull it. That's a lot easier than carrying it, right? God struck out against him for doing that because the problem is he wasn't moving according to God's word. He did what seemed right. It would seem logical for David to kill Saul in that cave. Remember that? His enemy's right there. God's provided a way for you to kill your enemy. Everybody's telling him to do it. But he doesn't do it, seems logical. It would seem logical, I thought about this, for Paul and Silas. Remember Paul and Silas are in jail? They're in jail. And an earthquake, earthquake hits and the shackles fall off and the jail cells open. Most logical next step is what? Get out of Dodge. Roll out. But they stay. And what, what does God do? God saves a soul through that. God saves a soul through that. So brothers and sisters, this is my, this is my burden. I don't care if the world thinks we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't care if the world thinks we are logical, crazy, nuts. I don't care if we don't give to their worldly wisdom. As long as God looks at us and says, that's my sons and daughters full of faith. That's a man of faith right there. I don't care if it seems illogical to the world. And I hope you don't either. So mark my word. Mark my word here. God is going to call some of you in some ways. I'd say all of you in a sense. To take off into these steps of faith. If God's showing you something, you're going to move forward in this step of faith. Maybe He's already shown you something like that. You need to step out in faith of God's Word and do what He called you to do. And then as soon as you do that, a famine's coming. Mark my word. Testing is coming. And you'll be tempted in those moments to retreat to logic and abandon faith in God. So how will you respond? How will you respond? Now let's go back to Abram. So Abram's faith has been tested. The famine has come. 
His faith faltered, went down to Egypt, sinned against God, harshly rebuked for what He did. But what about God? How will God respond in all of this? And this third heading here, God's faithfulness will prevail. It's my favorite part. As God enters the scene, right here in verse 17, God's faithfulness will prevail. Read it with me, verse 17. But the Lord, there He is, He enters in, He's there. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues. He plagued that man and his house. Why? Because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Abram called, Pharaoh called Abram and said, you see, Pharaoh knows that this is what happened. He's about to say, why didn't you tell me this was your wife? Now, how do you know that? How do you know now? Apparently, these plagues have hit him in such a way, and we don't know exactly how he put the, the two and two together. We don't know that, but, we'll, but, but maybe something like this. The plagues hit. Everybody's plagued with Sarah. Sarah, she's the only one not suffering the affliction. Maybe he talks to her. Maybe he finds out that that was not his sister. Or at least not only his sister. So Pharaoh called Abram. He says this. What is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Deliver. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, why would God do this? Why would God do this? Because he's a faithful God. This God that we're reading about is a he's a faithful, faithful God. Now, I, I want us to take some time because you think, why, why would he intervene on the faithlessness of Abram and Sarah? Why would he do that? He's a faithful God. So I want us to take some moments here to just exalt together. Lean in with me like I spoke about a moment ago at the very beginning of this. Lean in with me and let's exalt God for his faithfulness revealed in this passage. And I see it played out in three ways in this passage of scripture. I see God's faithfulness towards his children. I see God's faithfulness to his word. And I see God's faithfulness to His plan of redemption. So number one, let's start with that first one. God's faithfulness to His children. You see, Abram here is a child of God. He's a child of God. That's the reason God graciously allowed His world to cave in. Because He loves him. And He would deliver him as His child. And God wasn't testing a lost person here to verify their faith, to, to show that they weren't truly a child of God. He was testing His Son to purify His faith because He loves them and He cares for them. This is a testing of, the chill of a child of God. And so listen to me. This is what we see. God is faithful to His children. He's faithful to His children. Abram had turned his eyes away from the Lord, but the Lord had never taken His eyes off of Abram. Not for a moment. Abram faithlessly left the land of promise, but God went with him. He's here. He's a faithful God to his children, even in their fickleness, even in their weakness. I want you to think about this, you know, moms and dads in the room. You, you love your children and you, and you want to be faithful to your children. I know that about y'all. You love them. You want to be faithful to them. But listen to me. You're not even close to the way God does that. 
Jesus Himself compared those two things. He said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more your Father in Heaven give good things to His children? The faithfulness of God toward His children. Now I think, uh, I want you to think about this. I think seeing the faithfulness of God here, even in light of Abram's fickleness here, I think that had, to, that had a potential to be very, very encouraging to the nation of Israel. Okay? Now let me explain to you what I mean. So they're reading this passage and they're seeing the faithfulness of God in the midst of Abram's uh, faith that is, that is faltering. Okay? And I think that would have been very encouraging to them. And let me just try to get you to think about this so you understand what I'm saying. When did the nation of Israel receive this record that we call Genesis? When did they receive this record, this thing that we're reading called Genesis? When did they receive that? We know it's written by Moses, so they received it sometime after the exodus out of Egypt. So these people were taken out of Egypt, exodus out of Egypt. Moses was leading that out. And Moses died before they went to the promised land, before they made it into the land. So sometime in between the exodus out of Egypt and entering into the promised land, they get this record called Genesis. And you imagine them hearing it read for the first time. Imagine them coming across this passage. Now I want you to think about the similarities between their situation and what they're reading about Abram. Think about it. The nation of Israel had gone into Egypt because of a famine. We see that at the end of Genesis. They were oppressed there, but then delivered out by plagues so that they could go to the promised land. And what do we see in Abram? 400 plus, 500 years earlier, we see Abram going into Egypt because of a famine, oppressed there, and delivered out by plagues to Pharaoh to go to the promised land. Now you imagine how, how hearing that and noticing those similarities would have been an encouragement to the people of Israel. That God, despite, despite His weaknesses and His fickleness here, God delivered Him and brought Him into the land. You think of the encouragement that would have been for them. And I want to say in the same way how encouragement this ought to be for every child of God here right now. This ought to be an encouragement for you, child of God. Son and daughter of God, this should be an encouragement. Think about it. Despite his faithlessness, God delivered Abram to the promised land. And despite the, the, the nation of Israel's fickleness, he got them to that land. And though you are weak, fickle, sometimes faithless, God is faithful to get you to the promised land. Philippians 1.6, he says, He who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Do you believe this about the faithfulness of God? That if you are His child, He is faithful to you. So that even when you're faithless, He remains faithful. Romans 8, 29 is so often quoted. That, that all things work together for good. To those that love God, that are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. God is faithful to finish the work He started in you. To bring you where He has you going. It should be an encouragement that God is faithful to the children of God. Let's go to number two. God's faithful to His Word. Man, He speaks a word and God is faithful to His Word. God had given promises to Abram that would ensure that Abram and Sarah stayed married and had offspring. He gave them promises in Genesis 12, 1-3 that would ensure... 
that they stayed married and that they had offspring. So if God's given that promise, can anything stop it? Pharaoh can't supplant God's word. Abram's faithlessness cannot supplant God's promise. Therefore, God delivers Abram and Sarah because the Lord is faithful to his word. His word can never be broken. So why'd you deliver them? Why'd you intervene, God? Because I promised them something. It's coming. God's faithful to his word. Numbers 23, verse 19 says this about God. God's not a man that he should lie. He's not a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he not? Has he spoken it? Will he not bring it to pass? He's always faithful to his word. Solomon said this. He said, there has not failed one word of all of your good promise. God's word has never failed, never been broken. God's faithful to his word. I think this should increase our confidence by seeing the way he dealt with Abram. Think about it. God puts his power on display. Can God fulfill his word? Can he do that? He promised that they're going to be together and have an offspring. But Sarah's been taken to Pharaoh. His wife's been taken away. Can God keep his word? Yes, even the king of Egypt bows down to the will of God. He puts his power on display in this passage of scripture. He is powerful to be faithful to his word. Psalm 105, flip there with me. Psalm 105 gives a beautiful description of the faithfulness of God to his word. And specifically what's happening to Abram here. There's a lot of parallel here. Psalm 105, I want to read verse 7 through 15. I want you to see this is a beautiful description of what's happening in a very similar way with Abram. Verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers His covenant forever. That's faithful God. Remembers His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations. Never forgets the word He commanded. The covenant that He made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac. Which He confirmed to Jacob as a statue. To Israel as an everlasting covenant. Saying, here's the promise, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. There's the promise. And then look at this. Listen to the similarities with Abram. When they were few in number, of little account, that means they weren't the mighty nation they would become, and sojourners in it, in that land, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, He, that's God, allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account saying, Touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. That's our God. That He looks and He looks at Pharaoh and says, Touch not my anointed and do my prophets no harm. He stopped the hand of the king of Egypt because He's faithful to His promise. He's faithful. He's very faithful to His word. So brothers and sisters, are you trusting in God's word like this? As you see the faithfulness of God to His Word, are you trusting His Word? Are you standing in His faithfulness? Are you feeding on the Word of God and therefore feeding on His faithfulness? Now we have God's Word. We've got the Scriptures, which Jesus Himself said, the Scripture cannot be broken. In John 10.35, cannot be broken. He's a faithful God to His Word. So men and women of Grace Community Church, listen to me. 
Will you take up the Word of God? Where, where are you at? That will take up the Word of God. Stand on the promises that are there. Stand on the commands that are there. Stand on the attributes of God that are there. And when famine comes, you're immovable because your trust is in Him. Are you living in the faithfulness of God to His Word? Third expression of God's faithfulness. Number three. His faithfulness to His plan of redemption. His faithfulness to His plan of redemption. Now, this story that we just read, Genesis uh, 12, verse 10 through 20, this story is just... It, it needs to be put into the context of the larger story of Genesis. To, to the larger story of the whole Bible. This story needs to be put into that larger context. This story that we've read, Genesis 12, 10 through 20, it's just one patch in the quilt of this story called redemption. This story called redemption. Now this, this story of redemption really is laid out for us clearly, or at least is set up in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, as we, as I mentioned earlier, the very beginning of our time in the Word. So what we see in Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is we see this. God creates humans for His glory, for, their, for, for His praise, and He pours out absolute grace on them. You remember it? Genesis 1 and 2. God pouring out grace and mercy and love and kindness on these people that He's created for His glory. And then what do humans do? Humans rebel against God. Think about the story. They plunge themselves into eternal woe. Cosmic treason. Humans rebel against God. But God has a plan of redemption. This is that, that story, that plan of redemption I'm talking about. We see it in Genesis 3.15. When there's a promise that to, to Eve or about Eve. That the seed of the woman, that's what he's called. A he called the seed of the woman is going to crush the tempter's head. And right at the beginning in Genesis 3.15, we know that, that mankind has rebelled against God, but there's coming one who's going to be the head crusher of Satan. The Redeemer's coming. And this really sets up the story of redemption throughout God's Word. And so as the rest of the Bible, beginning there, Genesis 1-3, through 3, as the rest of the Bible unfolds, this story of redemption unfolds as the lineage of that seed or the lineage of that Christ is traced out all the way through the Bible till you get to Jesus, the one who fulfills it. Now let me tell you what I mean. For example, that's Genesis 1-3, through 3, but what about Genesis 4? Why? Why in Genesis 4... Does God raise up another son to Adam and Eve after Cain murders Abel? Why does He do that? Jesus. Jesus is the reason. That story is about Christ. Because through that son is coming the Christ who's going to save the world. He's going to crush Satan's head. But what about Genesis 5? Why in Genesis 5 are we given a genealogy that traces the lineage of that son all the way to Noah? Why do we get that genealogy that's not even that fun to read? Why? Because of Christ. Because of Jesus, right? Because through that lineage is coming the one who was promised to crush Satan's head. Genesis 5 is about Christ. Why in Genesis 6 through 9 does, does God put Noah and his family out of the judgment flood? Why? Because of Jesus. Because Christ is coming through this family. God's faithful to His redemption plan to send one that's going to crush Satan's head and save the world. He's faithful to that, so He plucks Noah and his family out of the judgment flood. Why do we see more genealogies in Genesis 10 and Genesis 11? Why? Because of Jesus. 
This traces out Noah's three sons and the lineages of their sons. But it gives special attention to Shem and it traces his lineage all the way to Abram. Why? Jesus is the reason for that. Because through him, through this, these people, this family, this lineage is coming to Christ. And so then we get to Genesis 12 and it zeroes in, as we said earlier, on this man Abram. And God promises Abram, Abram, in your seed. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So that seed of the woman is going to crush Satan's head. Is the seed of the woman who's going to bless all nations. Christ. This is about Jesus. Christ is coming and He's going to impact all nations. And so do you see that redemption plan just unfolding? Do you see that in Genesis? Do you understand it? And then we come to Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Our passage today. And what do you think it's all about? What's Genesis 12, 10 through 20 we just read? What's it all about? It's about Christ. This, this, this is about Christ. And here, here's what I mean. God is faithful to His redemption plan. Why would God deliver Abram and Sarah in this, out of this mess they got themselves into? Because His faithfulness goes beyond their fickleness. And He's going to keep His promise to redeem a people through Abraham. Christ is coming through the seed of the woman, through the seed of Abraham. So God delivers them. God's faithful to His redemption plan. God's faithful to His children. He's faithful to His Word. Faithful to this plan of redemption. He's faithful to test your faith. He's faithful to put the famine to your faith. He's faithful in your fickleness and your faithlessness and your failures. He's faithful to discipline you and rebuke you and bring you back to Himself just like He did with Abram here. And so Grace Community Church, I want you to hear this. Brothers and sisters, I want you to obey this command. I want to close with, with, with calling you to obey this command. In Psalm 37 verse 3 it says this. Feed on His faithfulness. Feed on His faithfulness. John Stam was a missionary to China who was martyred. He was martyred for his faith. And he said something like this. This is the way he described this similar idea. Of feed on His faithfulness. He said... Faith, talking about this walk of faith toward God. Faith is like the hand extended out to partake of His faithfulness. Feed on the faithfulness of God. You say, how? How do I do that? How do I live this life that's a hand reached out to His faithfulness, His faith? How do I live this feeding on His faithfulness? And it at least has, it has a lot to do with this right here. That every single day, daily, day in and day out, that you would feed on the Word of God. God had given a promise to Abram that you have His Word and that you would feed day in and day out on the Word of God in such a way that you have a heart to feed on His faithfulness. Not just to know a few things. I don't mean that. Just read it to know a few things. I mean daily in the Word of God in prayer. Why? Say, God, give me commands. The world thinks they're illogical, but give me commands. God, give me promises to stand on that the world thinks is crazy. God, give me your attributes and let me see things that I need to know about you. And daily you're going after it in His Word to feed on His faithfulness, to trust Him and obey Him in your life. He's faithful. And when you do that, you can rest assured what? God's going to send a famine. And so when He does, when He sends the famine on your faith, you know, I, I, I tend to think this. When the famine comes or when testing comes, I think, I think so many of us do this. We do something like, 
Man, I'm just ready for this stuff to get over, get over with so I can get on with seeking God. Do you see from God's Word and from His interaction with Abram that that's not God's way? You want to get on with God? It's through testing. It's through famine. So the famine's going to come and you're going to be tempted in those moments. You're going to be tempted in those moments to flee to logic, to flee to Egypt. Rather than trust in the living God. And I want to encourage you to feed on His faithfulness. you imagine if Abram would have stayed in that land? Would God have taken care of him in the famine? Absolutely. And he could have fed on the faithfulness of God in that land. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this unfolding truth of our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for the promises of one that would crush Satan's head, that would bless all nations. Thank you for your... You, you promised it, God, in perfection and you brought it about in faithfulness and perfection, God. You're so glorious in that. Lord, help us to see it in your word. Make us a people that sees that in your word and worships your holy name. God, thank you that you love us enough to test our faith. God, help us to be faithful to you in testing. And God, I praise you that even when we fail like this man, Lord, that, that you are faithful still to your children. That you're faithful still to your word. That you're faithful, God, in every way. God, make us a people that feed on your faithfulness, Lord. Teach us, Lord, to trust you. Teach us to worship you, Lord, in every season. In Jesus' name, amen.